It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. We are recording this episode on October 10th, 2020, and it happens to be World Mental Health Day, which I, I thought about going more into depth in a an episode that was more timely. But <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like everything we do is about mental health. So it's kind of always World Mental Health Day today. But I just thought it would be worth acknowledging it, even though the listener is, is listening to this past that day. So <laughs> just a little um, behind the scenes of our timing. We typically record our episodes about nine days in advance, and we try to keep things timely. And also when it fits to share some things that are going on on the actual days that we're recording. Today, I wanted to talk about a few things as usual. If you're new to our show, we tend to start on one subject and it evolves into something else. It's it's rare that we stay very linear and on subject. And I feel like that's an important thing that distinguishes our show. It's more conversational and fluid and true to life. I think it, life isn't always linear and clear and life is full of tangents and surprises that you really never know where things are, are going to go. I wanted to start off today talking about some of my thoughts on this new Netflix show called Emily in Paris. Is this a show that you've heard of, Jason? I see rumblings about things regarding the show on social media. Like many things, I, I'm, I think that I'm very interested in culture in general, but it seems to me that I get overwhelmed pretty quickly with, oh, watch this, read this book, check out this documentary. I, I guess in my filter, my internal filter, I just haven't checked it out yet, but I've seen people talking about it. And what is your... You know, what do you know about this show based on the rumblings that you've heard? Nothing. And, and what type of people have been talking about it? I think I've seen mostly women talking about it. I haven't seen any dudes chatting about it. But honestly, it's been one of those things I just keep see popping. The name keeps popping up, but I have done zero investigation. So I'm curious to hear more about it because it sounds like you have been watching it. You've dove in. Well, it's interesting because it is by or produced by, I don't know if it was created by, it might have been, I should probably have checked this out. Definitely produced by Darren Starr, who's very well known for Sex and the City, as well as Younger. Both shows I've really enjoyed. I forget what other roles he's had in this, but I'm going to look this up as we're talking. So I like Darren Starr's work. He tends to be really good at, oh, he also created Beverly Hills 90210, which I actually did did not know, as well as Melrose Place. How interesting. What a prolific career this man has had. And his shows, what they have in common is romance and women exploring themselves and growing. He features a lot of relationships, romantic relationships, as well as friendships. And I think his shows tend to be kind of like What's the term I want to use? Like shows that you can watch kind of mindlessly. They're comforting in a lot of ways. And I found myself craving things like that. I like to have them every once in a while. You can kind of watch them in the background or you can watch them with your friends and you can eat ice cream and all of that. Kind of like the stereotypical female show that doesn't have that much like conflict in it. You know, a lot of other popular television will have like so much intensity to it. 
you know, and these shows tend to be very light. And I think that's really nice during this time that we're in. But truth be told, those shows are are often really nice to have. And I turned on the show last weekend, I think, with my sister. And a few minutes in, I thought, ugh, I'm not really that into this show, which kind of surprised me because I really liked Younger right off the bat. And that show didn't didn't really get a ton of attention. I feel like it was always a little under the radar. I think they're, they still have new seasons coming out. But that show, I just really enjoyed the actors on that show and the characters. And of course, Sex in the City, once I finally watched that, which was after it had aired, I really enjoyed all of Sex in the City. So I was a little surprised to not immediately be into Emily in Paris. And I think it was just to be frank, I, I didn't I don't really enjoy the main character very much. She, I don't know how old she is. Let me see. I want to research a little bit more, but I'm also afraid of seeing spoilers <laughs> because I'm only on, yeah, I'm, I'm like, let's see here. How old is she? How old? I don't know. You know, I, I, I thought about looking up how old this main character Emily is earlier. And then I thought, why do I need to know how old she is? <laughs> I'm very sensitive to like ageism and things like that. And I feel like we compare ourselves to other people based on age. But I think some of the things I want to say about this show do have a bit to do with that. But I just, at quick glance, it says that she's a 20-something. She's played by Lily Collins. And she herself is 31 years old as an actual person, an actress. And I think she's playing a younger girl. So Jason, for context for you, she is an American. She lives in Chicago. The show opens up. This is not a spoiler at all for anyone who's, who's uh, interested in it, but the show opens up. And she's like working, I think, at an ad agency or something like that in Chicago. And she gets sent to Paris for a social media strategy job. And I've seen, I think, two episodes. Maybe I'm on the third one now. And so far, it's it's kind of just like establishing her. So she goes to Paris and it's very cliche. And I think that was why I wasn't really that into the show right off the bat. But I'm continuing to watch it out of curiosity. And the cliche sides of it is she's like this stereotypical pretty girl. She's in her 20s and she's really into social media. (laughs) And a lot of the show so far is about, you know, like the men she's dating. And there's a lot of like contextualization around like her dating life and her being this like straight cisgendered girl. And I don't know, it just feels very cliche. And I'm not really into her. And I think because for me, Emily feels like the type of girl that I'm turned off by in general. Like she feels kind of more like a Los Angeles type, stereotypical LA girl, which to me is mm, trying to find her value in the world through being pretty or cute and accepted by others, as well as being knowledgeable about social media. Like she feels like an influencer, even though she's working in an ad agency, I I think, or it's like a close, I don't know. I think it's an ad agency. I'm also like not a hundred percent clear on exactly what this business is that she works for, but it's something related to marketing and she goes in there to help them with social media. So I think the appeal is that shows like this in general, like I said, are nice because they feel very lighthearted. They're sweet. They're, they're like, you know, that formulaic show 
And I think a lot of people want to live vicariously through a character like this, especially now because she's traveling to Paris. And I think a lot of people just want to travel in general and then to go to some other place, some romantic city. And you see her like learning the language. And I think like that's the appeal. And then it's the relatability because she's really pretty, but she's not like too pretty. You know, she kind of looks like the girl next door. She's really cute. She doesn't like wear over the top makeup. And sometimes she gets really dressed up and sometimes she's really casual and wearing like a plaid shirt and whatever. And she's kind of discovering herself and she's finding her power. But there was this moment in the show where I realized I wanted to talk about this on the podcast where you see her get to Paris and she's taking pictures of things and writing like cliche captions. I don't even remember them off the top of my head, but they're just like one-liners, right? (laughs) They're not like the cliche long, like multi-paragraph captions on Instagram. They're the uh, one-line commentary about whatever she's taking a picture of. And none of the pictures she's taking are very remarkable, but they're kind of documenting what she's seen in her travels and what she's thinking about. And you see on the screen this graphic of each photo and like the number of followers she has. And then the next photo she takes, she has more followers. And then the next photo she takes, she has even more. And suddenly all these people are liking her photos. And you see this expression in her body of like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I didn't know I was going to become so popular. And that moment was where I thought, this is what bugs me about this show, is this girl comes across as... What is she worth more than her appearance and her social media knowledge? You know what I mean? It's like they're positioning her as smart, but not super smart and pretty, but not super pretty. And she's in a relationship or maybe she won't be in that relationship. And who's she going to date? And it's like, it's kind of like, I think, showing this character that the world seems to be really into right now for women, which is leading with a lot of these kind of superficial things, leading with the need for physical validation, love validation, social media validation. And I haven't finished watching the show. Maybe the character develops more and has a bigger arc and becomes stronger. But I don't know. The fact that it started off that way just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like they're not positioning her as super intelligent and kind of making her a semi-independent, but like also still dependent on approval from her employers and approval from men or other people. And they're putting so much emphasis on her age and her appearance and and her social media following. And I, I feel like that can be detrimental. And it's triggering for me because when I see things like this, I feel like ooh, maybe I should be skinnier because she's really tiny. Maybe I should dress the way that she does. Maybe I should do my hair the way that she does. Maybe I should post on social media more like her. Maybe one day I'll feel approved of on social media. And you know, and it's and then there's triggering for me too of the work that I do in social media and almost like being called out. Like I think a lot of the times the things that we are frustrated or annoyed by with other people are reflections on how we feel about ourselves. And Anytime I see anything triggering about social media, I really try to step back and think like, okay, what is this saying about me and my relationship with social media and the work that I do? Because I do so much work in social media. And I think it's bringing up a lot of questions and perhaps some insecurity. And then this fear, I suppose, Jason, of how much people... The show is obviously influential right now. Like You don't know anything about it, Jason, besides from what I told you, but you're still hearing about it, you know? And this show's making such a big splash, and yet 
I think that's where maybe the problem is, is like the show isn't meant to be taken that seriously, but I think a lot of girls are watching the show and wishing for this life that this girl Emily has. What is this character's life, you know, beyond her appearance, beyond her romance, beyond her job and beyond her social media following? If we put so much emphasis on that, which I think society is really pressuring us to do, especially as women, I worry about us being, I worry about like women getting older and feeling like, well, I don't feel as valuable anymore because I'm not a cute 20 something year old. I worry about women gaining weight and thinking they're not as valuable because they're not tiny like this girl in the TV show. I worry about girls not wanting to spend time on their appearance or money on their appearance. And since they don't dress like this girl in the TV show, that they're not as valuable. And I worry that these examples of girls over and over and again, I mean, the media is constantly putting this in their face. Like, look at this girl. Look how big her social media following is. She's important. It has a subtle message that if you want to be important, you want to be likable and lovable and cool and successful, you need to fall into that pattern. And it's almost like surprising to me that there's a show like that still happening right now in 2020. And yet simultaneously not surprising because if you pay attention to girls that are teenagers or early 20 year olds, like they're all kind of going after this. And I wish it wasn't like that because I don't think that that's great for women, but I don't think that's great for anybody like you too, Jason. I mean, we've talked about so much how even for you as a 40-year-old man, you still fall into that pressure that you have to look a certain way and dress a certain way and be a certain age and have a certain social media following. So you might not be watching the show, but that message is still there in our culture. And it simultaneously concerns me and triggers me because I don't feel like I fall into a lot of those categories as much as I feel like I should. It sounds like it's, you know, reinforcing several things to me. I think number one, it's it's reinforcing the idea that happiness, fulfillment, creative stimulation, or as you said, the idea that all of these externalities in our life can validate our worth. And it's particularly concerning, I think, at this time when there is a ton of isolation and loneliness and people just kind of being with themselves that People can particularly get sucked into this idea of chasing, we've talked about chasing the carrot as one of our favorite analogies, but chasing the happiness carrot that, wow, if I can just live vicariously through this character who's living in a different country and who's young and beautiful and finding love and finding her path in life. And whether that's a millennial watching the show or you know somebody in that age range, or perhaps it's someone who's a little bit older, maybe pining for a different time in their life. Or you know, what if I had moved to Paris in my twenties, and what if I had done something more creative? It you know, it seems innocuous on one level, right? But I think that I think that in many ways, television, movies, and mainstream media they reinforce tropes and they reinforce stereotypes and they reinforce ideals that really have a, a super profound effect on people. This is tangential, but also related. There's a lot of examples of this, but what comes to my mind, I remember in like the mid to late 90s when Friends was on and one of the biggest shows ever, when Jennifer Aniston got the quote, Rachel cut. I remember so many women, so many young ladies that I knew going out and going to the hair salon and requesting the quote, Rachel cut. If anybody remembers that, throw us a comment on social media or on our show notes. And you can go to our show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We always love hearing from you and getting your feedback on our episodes. But I think this is certainly not a new 
paradigm, Whitney, of of art and media and shows reinforcing stereotypes and also influencing culture. And if we look at the components of why it influences people so much, is that we're still locked in this kind of tribal mentality of, we've talked about this in previous episodes about the four dual basic urges that we we crave acceptance, we crave approval, we crave popularity, you know, and at the same time, we, we try and avoid disapproval, we try and avoid being ostracized, you know, we want validation. And I think it's it's a healthy human drive to want validation. It's a healthy human drive to want a certain amount of attention. But I think the point we're at in society now, especially with social media as a microscope and a magnifying glass, is people are addicted to the attention and they want more and more and more of it. And you're talking about social media being sort of a microcosm of the theme of this show, especially for millennial women. I think it's this idea that your self-worth is tied to your online following. But again, you said for me as a 40-something-year-old man, because this is our business and this has been our business for over a decade, there still is this idea of, oh, if I don't get enough likes and comments and shares, then brands won't want to do brand deals with me. Maybe I won't get another book deal. Maybe I won't you know, be in line for another TV series. Whatever the case is, I think there's an extraordinary amount of pressure that continues to build, whether or not you're an entrepreneur and use social media for entrepreneurship. The danger in what you're describing, Whitney, is is it's not only reinforcing unhealthy stereotypes potentially around weight and appearance and haircut and style, but it's also reinforcing an unhealthy stereotype that our self-worth and our social equity is tied to our online following. And I don't know if you've been, as an extension of this conversation... If you've been paying attention to China and how they have social equity ratings in China now, that your your value as a citizen is tied to your social rating, that there are social ratings based on your contribution, your employership, your credit. Like there's all these metrics that they're they're using in China. I'll see if I can find an article and link to it in the show notes, but I think we're being entrained. I think we've been entrained. Okay. Let me let me just keep ranting for a second, if I can, if I may. You know, grades in school. If you remember, I used to compare my grades to my peers. I'd be like, oh, what'd you get on your test? Oh, you got, oh, you got an A minus. Oh, dude, I got a B plus. We've been being trained to place our inherent value on externalized ratings and metrics for a long, long time. This is nothing new. I think school ingrained that in us. I think that credit scores ingrain that in us. I think the idea of measuring a person's success and value based on the amount of wealth they have in their bank account is also enforcing this. And then social media is just another layer on the cake. I think that we've been trained to value ourselves based on externalized metrics our whole life. And it's no wonder we have people suffering from self-worth issues, myself included, because it's, it's decades of conditioning we have to break through decades of it. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because the show is seemingly meant to help you like step outside of of your own life. It's like reading a book, you know. I used to read a lot of young adult novels growing up and I still enjoy them, like even though I'm not a young adult anymore. And you know what's funny, Jason? My mom watched all of Emily in Paris on her own. And I so <laughs> I went to say goodnight to her last night and, and she was watching it on her laptop in bed. <laughs> and I was like, mom, I didn't know you were watching that show. I would have watched it with you. It would have been like a fun show to watch with my mom. But it's also funny that she not only watched it a lot faster than I did, but she wanted to watch it on her own. And I asked like, why? And and she's like, oh, it's just kind of my like little bedtime thing that I do. I just enjoy watching it before I go to sleep. And I think for her, it's like kind of comforting and she loves 
French culture and all that stuff. And I just think it's fascinating that it appeals to a lot of different ages for different reasons. And I think that that's the big benefit. You know, it's it's nice to have shows like this. It's nice to have things to do that are kind of distracting. But then my concern is more when it triggers somebody. Like if, if a show like this doesn't trigger you and you're just watching it purely for fun and you're not taking it that seriously and you're not comparing yourself to these people, that's fine. But if you're like me, or perhaps you have an exam in this, so this is an opportunity to reflect on on it. You know, similar to what you were saying, Jason, like I remember with shows like Friends or 90210 and a lot of these shows that that Darren Star actually made is is they're based on these like relatable and yet aspirational people. And you think like if you get in enough into their world, you can't help but wonder how you compare to them. You know, like which of these characters you are. Same thing with like Saved by the Bell, which I love that show. You know, it's so common for people to say like, are you a Ross and a Rachel type? Are you are like um, Tiffany Amber Thiessen? What was her name on that show? I'm blanking on Kelly Kapowski. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like which which of these characters are you? And then you're literally being compared to them, and you're you're starting to think of yourself in that context for better or for worse. And what if you are more like one of the characters that you perceive as dorky or unattractive? You know, like for Say by the Bell. I would never wanted to be Jesse Spano. I wanted to be Kelly Kapowski, right? I, and or you know, you got Lisa Turtle and Screech. So for anybody who's watched these shows, <laughs> like everybody had their different opinions on them, just like they did with Friends and The Big Bang Theory, the newer version of that, and all these shows. You you start to compare yourself and your friends and your relationships to them for better or for worse. And I think that's just such a natural historical human thing to do. We've been telling stories and relating to them that common. But my concern is like when they get deeper into our psyche and how we start to measure our lives based on these characters, or we hear other people around us doing those things. Like I'm, I watched Emily in Paris because I too, like you, Jason, heard a lot of people talking about it. I saw it pop up on Netflix. I think I saw it in some article about like new releases. As I said, I checked it out. I watched a few minutes of it and thought, nah, this show's kind of lame. <laughs> But then I gave it another try because I heard enough people talking about it. And then now it's going to become steeped in our culture, potentially, if it's a big hit. And now suddenly, you know, whoever wants to be an Emily type is this model for everything that I described, which I think is not really the full spectrum of a woman. And the character is not designed to represent all women everywhere, but it represents a young, white, cute, social media focused woman. And I think that that, I just don't, I don't know. Like I, I as I said, I, I take issue with that representing the average millennial girl or, or younger. And I think that a lot of women will watch this show and aspire to be that. Or as you were saying, Jason, like yearn for that and wish that they had done those things, like getting to travel and work in Paris and all the other things she ends up doing that I haven't seen on the show yet. And my fingers are crossed that there is a character arc. You know, one movie I thought of as we were having this discussion is Under the Tuscan Sun, which is, or Eat, Pray, Love even, but that's a true story. But Under the Tuscan Sun, I believe is fictional. And it's this movie to me that made me feel really good because this woman travels to Italy and she's like 
I think taking an old Italian home that's falling apart and turning into this wonderful place. And when I think of that movie, there's obviously there's some romance involved, but she's like there to discover herself and like, you know, she's exploring things and having fun. And from my memory of that movie was was more empowering. Whereas so far with this show, I think like, oh gosh, like it makes me feel like I'm not good enough or whatever, even though uh, I'm a white woman who has traveled and studied abroad and done a lot of things. I've actually, you know, technically worked in France with a family I was nannying for. Like I've had a lot of these like kind of cool experiences that a character like this has. So I don't feel like I'm missing out on those experiences, but I feel like she's being shown as the model of like what a a desirable woman is. And I think as I get older, like similar to what you've expressed too, Jason, is when you're getting older, this fear of like, am I no longer valuable or cool or important because there's a 20-year-old girl that's, you know, obviously younger, but cuter and savvier and whatever and more desirable to men than me. And I think those things can come up too when you're watching content like this. And then on the other hand, if I were a teenager, I probably would be watching this show. And would I be aspiring to be that type of a girl? Probably, because I think the media paints this picture of social media as being the really cool job to have, whether you're working in like the marketing side and consulting, or you're becoming an influencer. And how many girls are going to go into that industry And are we kind of, as you were saying too, Jason, being encouraged to do that? Like, and I I look at the capitalist side of these things. Like, obviously, Darren Starr is making a shit ton of money off of these type of shows. Netflix is making a shit ton of money. The actress, all the people involved with the show are banking off the success of this messaging that is very desirable. And so telling these types of stories reinforces them, makes money off of people. When you get into the world of social media, as we've talked about in our episodes on The Social Dilemma and many others, there's a slippery slope with social media because the pros are that social media connects you to people and gets you access to people. But there's a lot of money involved with social media. And I think shows like this are kind of encouraging. They're showing us the like wonderful parts of social media, but not reminding us of the detrimental sides of social media. They're encouraging us to place emphasis on our appearance and our validation and our likes and our followers and and how we c- social media can help market brands. But is messaging and stories like this kind of leaving out the the, si- the dark sides of social media and the dark sides of influencer marketing. I think that's true for a lot of things though, Wit, is that we're sold this this idea that things are really easy and fun and joyful and it's always amazing and oh my God, you know, look how look how wonderful things are when my Instagram following is growing. And there there's so many examples I think of of this idea that popularity or fame or notoriety or validation, the things we're talking about, is only upside. It's only focusing on the upside. And we see this, I think, too, in in how we treat people that we hold in any regard of of fame or celebrity in our society. You know, we we've talked about in previous episodes certain celebrities coming out and talking about their mental health struggles, whether that be professional athletes or, you know, singers, artists, musicians, things like that. On the one hand, it encourages me when I see that conversation blossoming and growing and expanding because I think it not only humanizes the celebrities and professional people we hold in high regard in our society. But there's a downside to it. The downside is that 
you see, I've seen a lot of people on social media responding like, you know, what does, you know, what is Demi Lovato or Kevin Love or Kanye or whoever, you know, why are they struggling? Why do they have mental health issues? They have all this money. They have millions of dollars. They have fame. They have beautiful houses. They have this amazing relationship. Look who they're married to. It's a really dehumanizing construct. It's weird. You know, people get vulnerable and they open up about their struggles. And then on the one hand, you have people praising them like us saying, this is amazing that they're coming out and sharing their mental health struggles or their struggles with fame, their struggles with all of a sudden having all this money they've never had before. But then the wolves come out too, right? And the wolves are like, oh, wow, complain, big deal. But we have to realize that, you know, that there's this bizarre expectation of upside, upside, upside that once you, again, you're beautiful and you're pretty and you're rich and you're famous and you're influential, life must be so amazing all the time. And we need to deconstruct this myth and this narrative in our society because it's, it's dangerous in the sense that we keep encouraging people to chase those things. We've talked about this. Keep chasing the fame, the numbers, the money, the success, the notoriety, and just keep chasing, keep chasing, keep hustling, keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. Keep going. Not taking into account maybe this kind of system that we've created that on one hand encourages that, and then when someone achieves it and says, I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out, my mental health is suffering, oh, you have no business suffering, you're not allowed to suffer, it's really bad. Like, it's, I say this not you know, what's the word? I don't want to use this word flippantly, but it's a schizophrenic message. It's on one hand, keep chasing this thing, keep going. Society and the world wants you to keep chasing success and fame and notoriety. But once you achieve it, you are not allowed to complain. You are not allowed to suffer. You're not allowed to publicly talk about your suffering or we will chastise you. It's dangerous and it's fucked up. And I I really think that's one of the worst parts about our society where we simultaneously encourage and lift up people to achieve those things. But once they achieve it, it's like we've made them godly like and they're not allowed to show their humanity. It's bizarre and I th- it's really bad. Well, I think you're also touching upon the dangers of these type of stories because as we've talked about at least once in a previous episode, these stories show the highlight reels and we become so used to seeing other people's highlight reels in social media, but when we're not watching TV and we're not looking through social media, we're left on our own to deal with all the other sides of life that aren't shown in the media, you know, or (laughs) we, we have the opposite end of the spectrum where certain parts of the media like to talk about the horrific sides of things that happen to some people. But the average person is kind of like escaping through social media. Like social media makes you feel good sometimes and watching these TV shows make you feel good. But both of them can also trigger you. Like I said, like I enjoy going on TikTok and watching videos, but sometimes I fall into the comparison trap and think, wow, like that person has so many more followers than me or wow, this person's life looks so much better than mine. And we have been encouraged to show all of these great things, to show all these nice parts of life. And on one level, we do know that these people are just like us and they suffer as well and they're showing their highlights and there's more to their lives than we don't see. And then some people want to share those harder parts of their lives with others. And like you said, Jason, there's there's always that danger of, of them being ridiculed for sharing it and told that who are they to share these things or being rejected or being bullied or whatever else. Like There's so much fear around it. And I think there's different types of television out there too. Some of it will show the hard parts of life. You know, there's shows like Girls, which 
I really enjoyed watching because it felt very real. Girls felt like it represented a variety of different women, although I think they were all white, if I remember correctly. But they showed like the ups and downs of their lives and coming of age and their experiences. And it wasn't always wonderful. And I think that type of programming is nice to watch. But I think people watch shows like Emily in Paris because they want to escape. Like I was saying earlier, it feels good to go live vicariously through these characters. But if you don't have a self-awareness to not fall into the comparison trap when you're watching or fall into feeling triggered by things because you wish you had something that you don't or you're resentful that women are being represented this way or people are being represented in a certain way. It's it's tricky. And I think media in general is is really cognitively challenging. And some people don't want TV for this very reason. Some people go off social media for this reason. It's too hard to see all of these confusing messages and try to go about your life in a, a good way. You know, and I remember growing up, actually, this is, isn't something that we've talked that much about, Jason. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear this about you, but there are two big things I remember in this context about growing up, which is my parents never and to this day don't technically have cable television. My parents subscribe to Netflix and Hulu and HBO. So we have like those all because they're less expensive than they used to be and more accessible. And my parents like to watch TV and movies now. But growing up, we did not have cable. And that felt like such a big thing to me. I really loved watching MTV and Nickelodeon. So any chance I got, I would I would soak it up if I was at a friend's or a hotel. And when I got to college, it was like, whoa, I get have cable television. Like this is awesome. And I actually don't know how much of that was my parents just wanting to save money. But I think another side of it was that they just didn't think I needed to sit in front of the television all the time. And in a way, that was a big gift. And I think this is also truer of my age range and and older, you included, Jason. Like we didn't have smartphones growing up or and we had one computer in the household. I didn't have a laptop until gosh, when did I get my I think my first laptop, I had already graduated college. I had like a actually I had a really shitty old laptop of my dad's for a little bit, but like my first like real laptop, I was outside of college. So if I wanted to use the internet, I either had to use my dad's computer growing up or go to a friend's home or be at school. And then when I got to college, like I had a computer, but we also had like computer labs, <laughs> you know, where you could use them for different purposes. When I was in film school, I went to a computer lab to edit all my films because my PC at home didn't have the capability to do all of those things. So what I have access to now is so different, right? And growing up, my big point is that we, or I, I should say, my sister and I did not really watch that much television unless we were at a friend's house or, or at a hotel, or we rented a movie and we had a special movie night. And now you can watch a movie every single night and you have access to any TV show that you want. And you could just sit there and watch show after show and movie after movie or scroll through social media, which we also didn't have growing up. And it's just kind of interesting to think about how that's impacted me and impacted people that were in similar situations versus now where it's kind of the opposite. Like if you don't have a streaming service or a smartphone and a laptop and the ability to watch things whenever you want, you're like the odd person. It seems like most people have those things and, and allow their children to watch them. And it's weird if you don't let your kids watch television. And I also remember growing up, my best friend who lived across the street from me, her parents had cable 
but they would disconnect it and they really limited their kids' access to shows. Like they had certain times where they were able to watch it, certain times they could access it. I think parents do that now with the internet. And I remember thinking that was kind of weird, but also like kind of cool, you know? And my friend grew up never really caring about TV and movies to this day. Like it's just not a big part of her life. And I think it had such a big impact on her because she wasn't as exposed to these things. And how about for you, Jason? Like what was your media exposure like growing up? How did your mom relate to that? Did you have like restrictions around it? And how do you think that shaped you? And you're actually kind of the opposite of me in a way, because you don't really watch as much television and movies as I do. You don't seem as interested. No, I'm, I'm not. I try to be as mindful and selective about what I'm consuming. And I think that, you know, if we take it all the way back to sort of my, I guess, arc of media technology. This is part of an overarching conversation that I want to tie into about the evolution of technology, but also enjoying more analog things, which I do. I grew up with a black and white television. I am 43 years old. I grew up with a black and white television. My grandparents at their house still had a rotary phone. So I think back to using a rotary phone and using a black and white TV and we had, you know, color TVs were out. We just happened to have a black and white television. And I remember when I was really young getting a color TV for the first time and, and having the rabbit ears and you had to adjust the rabbit ears on the back of the TV set to get a signal. And there weren't that many channels. You know, it was like channel two, channel four, channel seven, channel 56, channel 20. Talking about in Detroit now, any, any Detroit listeners will remember, especially channel 20, channel 56, channel 50 as well. But there was maybe max 10 channels, Whitney. I don't even know if there was 10 channels. So certainly seeing this this evolution of technology in 43 years, it's it's engendered some interesting feelings in me because in a way, I kind of feel like there's a beauty in having less options. And here's what I mean by that. Whether it's as an artist having fewer options that you're you're either limited by your skill set, like as a guitar player. I think I know, you know, maybe 25 chords. There are guitar players I know that are vastly more talented than me. And at the time of this recording, one of my favorite guitar players, Eddie Van Halen, passed away a few days ago. And I've been going back and watching early videos of him when he was in his his late teens and early 20s. And it's insane how good he was at that age. One of the greatest guitar players who's ever lived, maybe the greatest rock guitar player ever. But contextually speaking, I think there's a beauty in having that level of skill and that many options, right? But there's also a beauty in having limited options. And in some ways, I kind of appreciated that time of having fewer than 10 TV channels versus now, you know, you talk about cable. I remember getting cable for the first time and it was like, oh my God, how many freaking channels are there? It was mind blowing. And I also think that for me, this might sound a little hipster and it's totally fine. I'm not saying that as a negative thing, but I really like the tactility and the feel of a lot of analog things, non-digital things. Here's where that shows up in my life. I love the sound and the feel of a vinyl record. And I think it's so cool that vinyl records are experiencing resurgence again, that things like tapes and eight tracks, but especially vinyl records. And there's just, there's a warmth and there's a vibration and a feeling that I get when I put on a vinyl record versus listening to a super produced, highly digitized track that's, you know, a brand new song that's come out. It's a different feel, much like when, say, I drive my car 
which is by modern standards, pretty old school. It's a stick shift. It's a five speed. There's very few electronic, I guess they call them nannies. Like there, there's not like stability control and, and vector, you know, lane vectoring and, and blind spot monitoring. And my car is very basic. Same with, you know, my motorcycle. I, I don't know. I like analog things, Whitney, because it's a different, it's not, it's like, as an example, it's not that I dislike, say, you know, driving your car or a lot of the electric cars that are coming out now. I think they're very cool in their own way, but it's just a different feel than when you get in like a loud, basic analog stick shift car. It's it's not that either one is better or worse, but I guess my whole point in this conversation is that as we keep progressing with social media, digital technology, automobile technology, I think there's going to be a part of me that always wants kind of that, I don't know, rotary phone experience with like, I think I always want to have a stick shift or an older car. I think I always want to have like an acoustic guitar and maybe like get a record player. I don't know. Does any of this ring ring true for you? Are there there any like quote old school things in your life that you want to keep around or that you enjoy? even as technology is rapidly accelerating. Is there anything like that for you? Well, it's interesting because listening to you, I think about the contrast. For me, I really love and have always seemed to love technology. When I was a little kid, I was really into computers, but that was because my dad, I think, was super into them. And so growing up, my dad spent a lot of time on the computer and showing me how to use it. And again, like it's amazing how much has changed in our lifetimes because like I said, we had that one computer in the house, but since my dad was really into them, we were able to, my sister and I, as we, we were able to learn how to do a lot of things and not everybody had a computer that they could access when I was growing up, you know, or if you did, you had like, which nice computer you had. Like I remember my, my, one of my friends had a color printer and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And it was really slow. And yet it was so neat. We would like draw on the computer and print out pictures that we drew or like play games. And I remember really wanting video game consoles when I was growing up. And like my parents just wouldn't buy those things, but you would go do those at your friends' homes. And I think I got excited about either things I didn't have access to, as many kids do, but also things that were new. And I'm very into that still. You know, I love trying new food. I love I love it when new products are released. I love it when new software comes out for the computer or the phone or my my car. And so I am very drawn to those things. And I don't I haven't really thought about how my childhood shaped that aside from my dad's interest in technology, but he's nowhere as into that stuff as I am. Like I'm in my friend group generally the most on top of new technology than others. And that being that early adopter, you know, whether it's getting an electric car when most people I know don't have an electric car and then having a Tesla, which is one of the most advanced technology focused cars out there, it excites me. You know, I love it when the new updates come out and the new abilities. I love, you know, you're talking about, Jason, how you're doing things manually and my car does all these things automatically. And those are the things that I love about it. And I don't think it's like about saving time, you know, like looking at them as shortcuts per se, even though there are certain things that I use that are appealing because they are shortcuts, because they save me time or money. I I enjoy that stuff too. But I just, I'm very drawn to the new things. You know, I like to know the news before most people do. I like to know, I like to just be in the know, I suppose. I think that's the draw for me, Jason. Technology, the 
more modern versions of things are interesting to me because they're so brand new. But like you, I also have an appreciation for older things and things that are better made. You know, generally things that are newer might not last as long. Some things might even be designed to not last as long. What's that term that they use for a planned obsolescence or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly it. Is when they they into the life cycle of a product, they limit the amount of longevity that the components have because they want you to be a repeat customer, hence profit. Right. And you know, that stuff really bothers me and and it could be simple like older Pyrex baking or storage containers that you would use in the kitchen and how it's fun to go to antique stores and find things that are 50 years old and still work really well. That stuff appeals to me more from like an environmental standpoint. And it's neat to see things that have stood the test of time, I suppose, and having an appreciation for them. And I think also going more analog or offline is appealing just for the mental health side of things, you know? And I took a walk today in the woods outside my parents' house and it was just like savoring the time in nature, but also thinking back to all the years in my childhood when I used to walk those very same paths when I didn't have a cell phone. In fact, I brought my cell phone with me simply for the cameras feature of it. And I didn't put it on do not disturb because in my head, I'm like, what if somebody needs to reach me? (laughs) And it felt so silly because I could have easily have left it at home. But it was that feeling of like, what if I miss an important phone call or text message? Or what if there's an emergency or, you know, all these things. But I didn't have that growing up. You know, I would just go out in the woods and be by myself all day because I didn't have cable television and I didn't have a smartphone and I didn't have my own computer. It was basically what I would do for fun. And I kind of miss those days, I suppose, because A, I live in a city where I'm not as surrounded by nature and things tend to feel more complex and chaotic in a big city. But also time has changed so much and our society has changed so much and we're kind of adapting to adjust to that all. And I think that's an important point of this too, is that things are happening at such a rapid rate. We have to be really gentle with ourselves as human beings. In fact, a lot of our structure of our societies are so young. Like there may be like in the past 100, if maybe 200 years that things have been established this way in terms of the way that we work and terms of our electricity, electronics, the way that we live as societies, the way that our houses are structured or our homes in general, and the way that our universities work. Like so much that we experience right now is really new to us as human beings. So I think we need to be really gentle on ourselves. And I think going back to this parts of Emily and Paris that bother me. I I suppose it just feels like women have come such a long way in a short amount of time and shows like this that kind of focus on a woman's superficial attributes, I think are really irritating to me because I would love to see more female characters of different skin colors and sexualities and body types and different careers and and women that aren't as focused on their outward appearance and their outward validation. I think it'd be amazing to see more shows that represent different types of women, different types of men as well. But speaking of women in this case, popular shows that are encouraging women to 
enjoy life outside of social media and not be so focused on what clothes they're wearing and which men that they're dating or women they're dating if if they're choosing that. But I think that that's part of the bigger picture for me with a show like this. And I think that we also have evolved a lot in terms of media. We have more variety. Emily in Paris is not like the only show you can watch on TV and it's not meant to be taken that seriously. It just kind of brought up a lot of these feelings for me and noticing how I am responding to it, I suppose. One thing it brings up for me, Wit, and I'm curious about your feelings on this, is the idea of hierarchy and social standing. And this ties into what we were talking about in terms of importance, validation, recognition, fame, money, a lot of the things that we tie into not only our perception of our own self-worth, but a lot of the the metrics and tropes that society and media reinforces about our standing. A couple of years ago, I read a book by Jordan Peterson. It was a really big book called uh, 12 Rules for Life. And to paraphrase, in one of the chapters of the book, he was talking about this idea that our very ancient idea of societal standing and hierarchy continues to become more complex and nuanced, but the basis of it is the same. You know, Whereas in the past, or still in many cases, including India, you have the, the caste system where the sort of standing in society that you are born into is where you will stay. If you are born in a lower class, poor segment of society, that is generally where you will be regarded the rest of your life. If you are born into kingdom or wealth or royalty, then that's where you'll also stay. So this idea of of hierarchy certainly has different permutations and expressions. But what this brings up for me is this idea that based on gender or roles, there are still very, very hard and rigid ideas of our standing and our hierarchy, right? It, it's You talk about with this, this show as sort of a microcosm of this, where if you're a woman in society, your standing and your hierarchy will be based on your looks and whether or not those looks can conform to society's norms, your age, and whether or not you have a youthful appearance, your popularity on social media, the kind of man you date or the kind of man you marry and where his standing is and where his wealth is. There's a lot of these you know, outdated kind of old school tropes that are still being reinforced over and over again. And for men, for me, one thing that I'm still decoding and still deprogramming for myself is as a man, you know, your level of success is defined by your material wealth, the numbers in your bank account, the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you have, whether or not you're a provider. Can you provide for a family and a woman and, a, and children? And there still are subtle and not so subtle ways that these gender stereotypes and these hierarchical metrics of success are continuing to be reinforced over and over again. And I'm bringing this idea of Jordan Peterson, his perspective, and others that say, we're really not going to get away from hierarchies in human society. They've been here for thousands of years. You, We can look back at the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Sumerians and a lot of ancient cultures. They had hierarchies. They had royalty. They had class systems. And my question is, do you think there's a way that we as humanity can get away from a hierarchical system of relating to one another? Or is this an unavoidable thing that we just kind of have to accept if we're going to be in human society? Because there's certainly a lot of you know danger we've talked about in terms of mental health and the way we regard ourselves and the way we compare ourselves to others. But this idea of a hierarchy in society, Whitney, is certainly not a new exploration. This has gone on for a long, long time. So I'm throwing it to you to get kind of your maybe existential take on it. Do you think we can exist and relate to one another as humans without hierarchies? 
It's tough to say. And without being a historian and studying all these things, I've really only scratched the surface on it. I think that we benefit in a lot of ways from leadership and having somebody that's in charge of a community is really helpful. And not everybody wants to play that role. So sometimes we naturally fall into these categories or hierarchies, if you will, but they certainly have their dangers and their drawbacks. You know, another show that I almost finished watching is called The Vow, and it's about a cult. And it's really interesting to see how that cult came to be. And and it had so many seemingly positive intentions, but at the end of the day, people were being very manipulated in order to benefit the people at the top of the pyramid. And I think that that's, that's a very common experience. We see this in a lot of different ways, and we have hierarchies in terms of our finances and our businesses and our political system and our government. So I don't know. It's a really big question to answer. And I think that we're all just trying to figure it out, but many of us are kind of going based on what our parents teach us, what the media teaches us, and what our education system is teaching us, along with any laws that we have based on where we live. And so there are times where we feel very free, and there are times where we feel like we're kind of slaves to the system. And I think there's some kind of balance in between. Like there's certain things that we need to do to operate properly as a society. And there are things that we can do to kind of rage against the machine. And whether that's based on where we live and how we live and and being true to ourselves, even if society seems to reject us, you and I, Jason, are, are big advocates and allies for people of all different genders and sexualities and races and all of the other sides of life here. And I think we have to continue to raise their voices. And actually, this leads me to something else I wanted to touch upon today. Tomorrow, in in real time, so today's October 10th that we're recording this, on October 11th, it is the International Day of the Girl. And I received this email about girls' empowerment and human rights. According to the UN, nearly one in four girls aged 15 to 19 years worldwide is not engaged in education, training, or employment compared to one in 10 boys of the same age. By 2021, around 435 million women and girls will be living on less than $1.90 a day, which is the official threshold of extreme poverty. And that includes 47 million pushed into poverty as a result of COVID-19. So tomorrow, October 11th, the International Day of the Girl is intended to recognize these unique challenges that girls face around the world and promote girls' empowerment and the fulfillment of their human rights. If we can support girls' rights to education and healthcare, it gives them a fair shot of becoming tomorrow's leaders, workers, entrepreneurs, innovators, and political change makers. And also in this article, which, which I'll link to more of this project from World Centric, who sent this email, they had a little list of six ways you can empower girls today. Number one is to give a girl the opportunity to go to school. You know, and here 
in the United States, for me and Jason, at least, I think we kind of take for granted that we got to go to school. But there are women all around the world, especially in places like Kenya, where they're highlighting in this newsletter, that's not a given. You know, they need money and resources to not only attend, but thrive in school. So you can donate to organizations such as the Women's Global Education Project. And again, I'll link to some of these things. Number two is to help girls stay in school and around the world. Girls miss approximately 10 to 20% of their social days because they lack the proper resources needed to manage their menstrual cycles. So simply making sure that women have access to, you know, pads, underwear, soap, education around that is really important. And I think the same is true with mental health, which is not the aim of this. But as I was reading that, I was thinking about how many girls in my high school, I went to a small town, very privileged public school. And I remember so many girls that, you know, here they are, like I said, lots of privilege, seemingly loving families. They struggled with their mental health in all sorts of ways. I remember girls skipping school or going to spend the whole day in the nurse's office, going to therapy sessions with our school counselor, you know, like mental health was something I noticed in my town. And having all that privilege, if that's happening there, it's happening everywhere, certainly. And I think resources for mental health are really important for, of course, men as well. But if girls are missing school because of their periods, like what other things are they missing school for that haven't been acknowledged? Number three on this list is to provide a family with clean water, which is another thing we take very for granted in areas like Los Angeles and other parts of the United States. But around the world, girls and women collectively spend 200 million hours each day collecting dirty, unsafe water for their families, which is like astounding because we don't talk about that nearly enough. It's so important to donate money when you can just to help with water filtration systems. You know, even in the United States, water is an issue in certain areas. Like, uh, is that still happening in Michigan, Jason, in Flint? Yeah, this has been years now. You know, Flint is still going through that that water crisis with the contaminated water and and the pollution. And so it's not, you know, something that is relegated to, say, other nations or third world nations or, I mean, Flint is an economically very depressed community in general in Michigan. But yeah, that, that water crisis has not been fully resolved to this day. It's been years. And that's why it's so important to be aware of what's happening in communities outside of your own and advocate for them, donate money when you can, and really just become more educated. Number four on this list is provide a girl with life-saving care because complications from pregnancy and childbirth are the leading cause of death amongst adolescent girls. And this is especially the case in a developing country. Number five is to mentor a girl in your community. So if money is not something that you can do, you can certainly get involved and volunteer. There are great organizations like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and many girls in the United States are limited as a result of poverty, violence, and unequal opportunities. So being a mentor, that that's something that I would like to do more. I think you'd be really great with that too, Jason, being a mentor. I've thought about it for sure. Yeah. I, I'm not really quite sure what, what avenue I would want to go down with that road, you know, if it would be like a big brothers, big sisters type thing, or if there's a more specialized organization. But one thing that I, I have thought about is 
wanting to help young men embrace their sensitivity and their emotions and know that it's okay to be emotional and sensitive and compassionate and sort of, you know, start to break down that stereotype for men to be cold and emotionally detached and sort of robotic that that still happens in our society. I just don't know what what route to go, but it's interesting you bring that up. Well, maybe it's time to start looking into that more. And number six on this list is to advocate for the rights of women and girls. Having a conversation about gender equality like we did today. Sharing a post from an organization on social media. You could share this podcast with somebody if you would like to. Splitting domestic work in your home 50-50. So if, if you are a man or a woman in relationship with someone of the opposite gender, you can do that. I think also <laughs> women who are in relationships with women could do the same thing. And of course, men in relationships with men can do it. It's important for everybody to feel equal, but it certainly is a bigger issue for inequality of of women. Getting involved with your local government, I mean, there's no better time in the United States than now for that. And especially in our country, there are certainly some pressing issues that are related to women. And knowing your own rights is really key too. So there's a great article that we will link to from the UN. And this is all in a newsletter. So I'm going to link to the whole newsletter because they have all sorts of great resources and information for you and both for men and women to be aware of these things. Women need the support of men to rally for them because of inequality. And it's so important for us to be allies for each other and do what we can, whether it's donating time or money, raising your education, and noticing how the media plays a role in your perception of yourself and others. And, you know, again, a show like Emily in Paris, I'm not I'm not boycotting it. I'm, I'll probably finish watching it. It's something that I enjoy. I'm interested in it. I think there's a lot of societal messages in there that I'm just fascinated by, obviously, by the bringing this up. But I, I also enjoy watching shows like that when I, I just kind of want to, quote, turn off my brain for a little bit. And I think it's nice to have access to that. I crave that sometimes. I see how it benefits someone like my mom who wants to watch it before bed. And I think a lot of women do enjoy having that type of media, but we do need to stay aware and we do need to pay attention to our feelings. If, if a show like this doesn't make us feel good, then don't watch it just to be part of some cultural conversation. And if it makes somebody else feel good, like there's no benefit in shaming somebody from watching this and or someone for aspiring to be like Emily or yearning for a life they never had. I think it's just important to have conversations around this and to diversify the type of media you're watching, making sure that you're spending time offline and with analog things, as Jason was talking about, and consuming other types of media, the news and documentaries and looking at different people. I mean, if you're like me, it's not really beneficial to just watch shows with characters that look like you or act like you, live like you. It's really important for us to be consuming content from other people, whether they differ from us in the way that they look or their age or the way that they live their lives. And and even like our different political perspectives, actually something I've been trying to do is to pay attention to people who differ in their political opinions and not be judgmental, but just simply to see their sides. As we talked about, and I think in our episode about the social dilemma, we can get so stuck in a bubble of people that agree with us and live like us, all these like-minded people, and that actually can be very detrimental to us. So if you want to watch Emily in Paris, like I may continue to do, don't worry about it. (laughs) Just make sure that you are 
aware and diversifying. That's my take on this. How about yours, Jason? Yeah, I think in general, exposing ourselves to a variety of perspectives, belief systems, viewpoints right now is more important than ever because of what we mentioned, as you said, the algorithms and the AI, particularly in Facebook and Instagram, skewing toward giving you the same type of thematic content over and over and over again, which then leads some people to believe that that is reality and that is the only reality. So to your point, I think it's especially important to open our minds and our hearts, even if we don't agree fully with it, to at least on a basic level, try and understand different viewpoints, different theologies, different political perspectives, and not isolate ourselves. Because there's a lot of not only physical isolation, there's a lot of mental isolation happening right now. And and I think it's important that we stay open. We don't have to agree with everything, but just I think staying open is super critical right now to have a really respectful discourse in our society, which seems to be becoming more challenging by the day in some in some facets of society. So Whitney, as we are hurtling like a meteor toward the earth that killed the dinosaurs, we are hurtling toward the end of this podcast. Do we have shout outs? Do you have any, any brands you want to shout out? We, it's been a hot minute since we did that. Anything you've been loving recently you want to give a little love to? Gosh, I, I feel like there are more brands than I am. Um, I will say... Just as a side note, I went to Dunkin' Donuts for the first time in a while because they now have oat milk and it was <laughs> lovely. <laughs> I was, I don't know why. You know what? I do know why. Actually, I take that back. Social media influenced me because I love watching TikTok. And I anytime I see somebody drinking coffee on TikTok, I immediately want some. And I generally make my own. I usually have like Ripple milk and creamer. Those are, that's my favorite brand for milks right now because it's also low carb, low in sugar. But every once in a while, I'll splurge and have oat milk. And I will sometimes have it at home. I'll have Oatly. I tried Chobani's oat milk recently, just out of curiosity. And then I decided to go to Dunkin' Donuts because I just got so influenced by seeing people drinking it on TikTok. And it was really good. I had very low expectations, but I am from Massachusetts. And I am currently in Massachusetts. It's a very Massachusetts thing to do to go to the Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru. And I couldn't stop thinking about it for weeks. So I finally gave in. I went with my sister and got a really good oat milk latte. I brought my own stevia. I brought the, I don't remember what brand of stevia that was, but I brought it in to sprinkle it in there and had a very enjoyable sugar-free, well, with the oat milk, I think it probably had a little sugar. And then my sister got the pumpkin spice latte with oat milk. It was not dairy-free or vegan, but she said it was fantastic. So I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind, Jason. Beyond that, I've been working on a lot of content from all the amazing brands that supported me during my road trip. And uh, we talked about most of them in a recent episode. So I would encourage the listener to go listen to that cross-country road trip episode in which I detailed all of the brands and I've been still enjoying them. You know, I, right before we started, I was eating a grab the gold snack bar, which really hit the spot and still, still finishing those up. And then I'll be traveling back to Los Angeles in like three weeks or so. And I'm sure I'll have some more brands to mention in, in that episode. I think we're going to do another cross country episode. Heads up, Jason, like what's the second half of a cross country trip in November during a pandemic like? So get ready for that one. Cool. So I want to give a, a shout out 
on the non-dairy tip to Elmhurst. I've done some cool stuff with Elmhurst at the beginning of this year and we actually flew out to their headquarters in their research lab. I don't think I've talked about this before. I actually got to go into their their really large laboratory where they do food science and food development and recipe testing and got to work with their lead food scientists. It was very cool and very interesting and got to learn a lot about flavorings and the chemical manipulation of food. Not that they add chemicals in a negative way, but what food scientists do. I'd never had a chance to hang with a food scientist for an entire day and learn more about the art and the craft of that profession. But what they did was they recently sent me a package of their brand new, apparently this just came out retail-wise, of a soft serve mix, an, an ice cream soft serve mix that comes in a Tetra pack, which is kind of that cardboardy insulated package that you see most non-dairy milks in. And they sent me something called a Zoku bowl. And the Zoku bowl is kind of a way that if you don't have an ice cream maker at home, you take this soft serve mix. They have a chocolate and vanilla from Elmhurst and you get the package and it's a, it's shelf stable. But in order to activate it, you need to put it in the fridge and then you put this Zoku bowl, which is basically this metal bowl with, it's sort of like a gel inside that gets it super, super cold. You put that in the freezer and then once the, the bowl is frozen solid and you have the soft serve mix chilling in the fridge, you pour the soft serve mix into the Zoku bowl and then you just whip it really, really fast and it gives you instant soft serve. And it's the only thing I've ever seen as far as like an instant vegan soft serve at home. And it's really freaking good. It's super delicious. I'm actually going to be posting some videos on my social media about it, just showing how easy it is to make it. But kudos to Elmhurst for, first of all, innovating like crazy. Their food scientists and their development team did an incredible job. But you can order this online. They actually have a kit, Whitney, where they will send you both flavors, the chocolate and vanilla of the soft serve mix. And they give you the Zoku bowl that you can send to your house and you can have instant soft serve ice cream. Totally vegan, totally dairy-free. It's I don't know who else is going to imitate this if it takes off, but as far as I know, I think Elmhurst is the first brand to do this, and it's really rad. Well, once again, I feel really envious. It actually has been hard being away from Los Angeles because there's a number of things that are happening there <laughs> that are not happening uh, in Massachusetts. Another one of them is Good Catch. Have you tried the tuna sandwich of Veggie Grill yet, Jason? Or is that still on your list? Because I'm yearning to do that. It's still on my list and I may actually go and try it this afternoon because I am going to go to an independent bookstore called Vromans in Pasadena that has been in danger of closing. And I want to make sure that I support, speaking of analog things, support the independent bookstores because it's so critical right now. So I'm actually going to take the motorcycle to Pasadena to go to the bookstore. And I think there's, I think there's a veggie grill in Pasadena. Is there? Do you know if that's true? I don't recall. I think there may be one in downtown LA. I could be wrong, though. I, don't, I haven't been to one around there that I can think of. There's a real food daily out in Pasadena. I'm sure. I mean, I feel like there has to be a veggie grill out there. I just looked it up. There is. So I'm going to go. I'm going to make sure they have it. And I'm going to treat myself to the Good Catch Tuna Melt and report back with my, I'll say report back with my findings, report back with my tastings, my tasting impressions. Yes, I will report back. Okay, well, one more shout out just simply because, you know, why not? And we haven't done very many recently, but I love goddess provisions. I've mentioned them in previous episodes. And actually, Jason, I, <laughs> I'm just going to say this on air. Maybe we can find a creative way to do this. I think they sent me their most recent subscription box 
to my Los Angeles address instead of my Massachusetts address. So I'm, I was thinking of asking you to pick it up for me and open it up and, and maybe do like a, a guest post on my <laughs> Instagram stories, takeover or something, because I like to post about them within a few days of getting it because it helps spread the word and I'm an affiliate for Goddess Provisions. So I may be requesting your services, Jason, and, and we can talk about what's in the box in a future episode. But this last box that they sent me, and I guess it was September, was just so sweet. It was a color therapy box and it included like all of these color related things like I got this cool deck of cards that you get to pull and it tells you which crystal is you know it's kind of like what's meant for you based on what you pull from the deck of cards and they gave sent me um, a purple agite which is it's like a slice of a crystal it's beautiful purple is one of my favorite colors and that's for stability they sent me this neat bracelet and each of them are color coded. I, I got a mood ring, which was a blast from the past. And it was very comfortable to wear. So I wear it a lot. There's something also like comforting about it. But my favorite thing in the box was one of those, what's the term for it? You hang it in your window and it, it creates like little uh, rainbow projections when the sun hits it in a certain direction. But I'm completely blanking on what that's called. It's like a little like crystal sphere. Do you know what I mean, Jason? Mm, a crystal? No, I don't. It's like a, a clear piece of crystal that you hang in the window, and when the light hits hits it, the prisms light up on oh. the walls as rainbows. But I don't remember what that's called. Anyways, um, I don't remember. Either. I love that. It's very satisfying. I I have it in the my window that in my little office set up in Massachusetts, and it's got like a great tactile sensation. And Goddess Provisions in general has just been one of my favorite brands for a long time because you get this like special box of goodies every month. And I'm a little nervous about having you open up the box on my behalf, Jason, because I think you're going to want to seal whatever I get. <laughs> Likely. <laughs> because they always send amazing things, most of which are, are like crystal related or scents or like you love the incense they sent me a few times. And sometimes they send snacks or teas. It's just so great. And I feel sad if the box does indeed go to my Los Angeles address because I'll have to wait a whole month until I get to experience it. So they feel like a very worthy brand to shout out over and over again to remind you the listener. Because if you like this podcast, you're probably into spiritual things and crystals and self care and all of these supportive items that you can have around your house that just make you feel good. And Goddess Provisions always makes me feel amazing. Well, do we have, it's been a minute since we've done this. Do we have any frequently asked queries in the queue? We have a lot, but time does not allow us to do them today because we can go on major tangents <laughs> with the frequently asked queries. We will, so. we, will, we will reserve them maybe for the next episode. We will see. We, we, we want to make them juicy, though, because it's been a hot minute since we've done them. So until we get to that next episode, dear listener, thanks for being with us. If you want to dig into the show notes for this episode, all of the books, the resources, anything that we mentioned today for you to go a little deeper down the research rabbit hole, you can find all of those resources on our website, which is wellevator.com. That is our brand that is dedicated to wellness, mental health, emotional support, just really finding our collective humanity and our purpose 
and growing here in this very often confusing, chaotic, but wonderful life. So go to our website, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go to the podcast section where you will find show notes for this episode and all of the episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable. We also have some great free resources and you can follow us on social media. We're on all the major platforms at Wellevator. Again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And I'm looking forward to you coming home, Whitney, so we can devise some maybe some interesting new contents maybe shoot some some new tiktok videos i don't know i'm sure there's going to be a lot more once you return physically in person and i miss you and it's going to be great to have you back so looking forward to that stay tuned dear listener to our social media channels for more content coming soon and we'll catch you with another episode in a couple of days thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 